Look at all those kids. Shows you what we need in the back. It's nice to be in here without them, but my goodness. They're in a hallway back there. My name's Evan. I'm the pastor, if we haven't met. Uh, Before we hop into 1 John, I kind of want to take a moment to point something out. If you've been down here at all in the last two years, what's my definition of the church? We are the church, right? It's not a building. It's not an institution. We, the people of God, are the church. With that, each of us have been given opportunities to glorify God in our own worlds, our own mission fields, however you want to phrase it, right? We come together to encourage and support one another, but this is only a fraction of the week, and God has plans for you outside of these walls. So I want to give you an example of a ministry that somebody within our church has been doing. Derek, he was up here giving announcements, and his wife Shelby and their three kids have been ministering to seeking after skaters for the last 15 years of their life, to the point where they developed their own skate ministry and skate park down in Colorado Springs, which is still up and running, fully functional. But three years ago, four years ago, they felt called by God to come up here and plant another skate church. So for the last two years, they've been up here just waiting on God, seeking Him, taking advantage of every opportunity that they can. This summer, we were outside in various church parking lots. They have like a mobile skate park. And the kids that showed up 20, 30, 40 each week were just loving what they were bringing. And on Tuesday nights, they'd do something called Skate Church, where Derek would give a 15, 20-minute message about Jesus. Next week, they open up their first indoor skate park here in Rapid City. Right? I tell you all this... To show you, when God leads you to do something, it requires time, it requires courage. But my goodness, he wants to use you to connect with the people that are in your world. If you're having trouble finding that, or if you're interested in little punks with their flat brim caps, get a part of this. It's so easy and so good. All right. So we're in First John, about halfway through it. Um, really interesting book right? Challenging. Um, Ben, the head pastor of Rimrock, he chose 1 John. Um, It's definitely one that I tend to steer away from a book like this because it's not easy, like packaged, like run-of-the-mill sort of Christian thought. There's a lot of challenge in here, and I hope you guys are benefiting from it. But what I want to do right now is just read the passage that we have right now, that we're looking at tonight, today, this morning, um, so that way you guys know where we're coming from. 1 John 2, 18 through 25. Children, it is the last hour. As you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. From this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But by going out, they made it plain that none of them belonged to us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and all of you have knowledge. I write to you not because you, know the tr- you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and you know that no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Everyone who confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. If, you. if what you have heard from the beginning abides in you, then you will abide in the Son and in the Father. And what, 
is, and this is what he has promised us, eternal life. I write these things to you to con- to you concerning those who d- would deceive you. Simple, right? Easy package Christian thought. You guys understand what he's saying? Ready to leave? Apply it to your life? I tried to get Derek to teach this one. He was just scared completely. He's like, heck no, Evan. I'll do the one before you do this one. So my role, my desire as a teacher here at Rimrock Downtown is for us to study the Bible together. I see the value of psychology and sociology, delving deeply into the individual and into society. I also see the value of looking at history, at current movements and what's going on within our world. Personally, I love philosophy. Deeper trains of thought trying to explain why the things are the way that they are. Each of these studies can bring important insights into who we are as a people, why we do what we do. But in order to gain anything of lasting value, truths that transcend individuals, cultures, and circumstances, I believe that we must go directly to the Word of God. The Bible is the only thing that gives truth that are relevant to every person in every culture, regardless of the circumstances that they're in the middle of. Because it is inspired by the creator of everything, it has the ability to speak life-changing truth into every individual throughout all of human history. If you've grown up in the church, you know this to be true, but please shake the dust off of that statement and understand the power that the Bible must have. I love the way that he, the author of Hebrews puts it in, in Hebrews 4.12. Indeed, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing until it divides soul from spirit, joints from marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Right? That's any time God speaks. And what we see is the Bible is inspired by God himself speaking to humanity. Because of this power, I not only want to teach you the Bible, even more so, I want to teach you how to study the Bible. It's really not that hard. The Bible is accessible to everyone. It just requires a desire to put the time and effort into digging deeper on your own. For so many people, they find the Bible to be hard to understand or outdated simply because they only spend a fraction of time studying it and even less time meditating on the ways that the universal truths apply to them. I'll just put it bluntly. We are the reason why the Bible seems so confusing or antiquated. From what I've discovered, if a person puts the, same, puts the time into studying and reflecting on any book of the Bible, they will be able to understand it and walk away with important truths that can benefit their life in the here and now. If you put the same amount of time into studying the Bible that you do into football or style or remodeling or hunting or politics or mountain biking or social media or Netflix or whatever it is that you're into, then you would know so much more about the life-changing reality that we find in the Bible. As with anything, there are certain techniques or strategies that make whatever we do easier or better. For the Bible, context is crucial. Really, context is crucial to understand anything. Let me give you an example. Show that picture, would you? So, I'm sorry for people online. We're having technical difficulties. Um, Should have come down here. Um, So if you would have saw this picture in 2019, what would you have thought this was from? A movie, maybe? Right? Some sort of sci-fi, Brad Pitt in there somewhere, World War Z. Right? Go ahead and go to the next one. 
or this one. It's like, my goodness, that's weird. Like, zombie, that, that, that guy looks creepy, right? And then the last one. Before leaving the house, wallet, keys, mask. Right? There would be no way to understand what this means in 2019. But now, in 2020, we understand the context, therefore we understand what they are showing. With biblical study, discovering the textual and historical context of the passage you are reading is paramount for correct understanding. And I'll explain the textual and historical here in a bit. When we don't, it's so much easier to trust our own thoughts and our own assumptions of what we think the text is saying. But when we spend time determining context, we have a much better chance to learn from the Bible, not ourselves. Let me show you what I mean. So we'll go back to 1 John 2.18. We'll start with that first verse. Children, it is the last hour. As you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. From this we know that it is the last hour. Now, any of you, when you heard this, did you instantly think of Left Behind? You guys remember that series in the early 2000s about what life would be like after the rapture occurred, books, movies? For so many of us, the phrase last hour and the word antichrist immediately cause us to think about a supervillain rising up, empowered by Satan, taking his position as ruler of the world so that darkness can reign. When we enter into this category of thinking, people seem to have a somewhat polarized reaction. Either they fully embrace it or they instantly dismiss it. Because of this, when we read this passage in 1 John through the, book of, through the lens of the books of um, Daniel and Revelation, we try to see what John is saying about the first and second beast, the seven seals, the bowls of wrath, right? And the way that this connects to 21st century America and the election. It's got to be, right? Look who is now present. Therefore, Antichrist, it must be. Or we glaze over and skip the entire passage because we don't care or see the value it has to our lives now. You know, I tend to fall into the second camp. But after spending time reading and rereading these verses and exploring the context, I don't feel like either of these approaches are correct. There are really good things in this passage ones that apply directly to us, ones that point out the wickedness of our world and the very real choice that lies ahead of us. But to see them, we must be thinking about the context in which it was written. Specifically, what was John, the author, wanting to communicate to his original audience, right? some house churches in Rome in the late first century. Now, in order to explore this passage this morning, we'll look at just those two verses the last hour, and Antichrist, and try to figure out what the heck John is talking about. So let's start with children, it is the last hour. Now this one is harder for me, still is. Still trying to figure it out, but what I've come up with is that by looking, what I've come up with is that John is trying to communicate something a little bit different. And the way that I came up with this is by looking at other passages from different New Testament authors. By doing this, I was able to gain a little bit more biblical context, the idea of what a passage means based on what the rest of the Bible says. So let's look at 2 Corinthians, or excuse me, 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5. This is Paul writing to Timothy, kind of like a mentor-mentee sort of position. 
you must understand this, that in the last days, distressing times will come. For people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, inhumane, implacable, slanders, profligates, brutes, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to the outward form of godliness but denying its power. Avoid them. You don't see a whole lot of exclamation marks in the Bible. Sounds a lot like today, doesn't it? And we love to make ourselves the focal point of human history, don't we? The reality is that what Paul is describing applies to every single generation throughout all of human history. He also tells his audience to avoid them. That means that when Paul was writing, it was considered the last days then too. Let's look at what Peter says. 1 Peter 4. 1 Peter 4, 7. Are we back online? Sweet, so I don't have to tell you all the references. All right, 1 Peter 4, 7. The end of all things is near. At hand is another way to translate it. Therefore, be serious and discipline, discipline yourselves for the sake of your prayers. So Peter is saying the exact same thing as John. He wants his audience, first century Romans, to know that the end of all things is at hand. Now, by looking at these, three let, these letters, three different authors three different audiences, all writing the inspired word of God, I feel like we got two different interpretations. Either John, Paul, and Peter were like so many others throughout the last 2,000 years who wrongly predicted the return of Jesus. It's an option. Or, when they use phrases like the last hour, the last days, and the end of all things, they are referring to something else. Something other than the moment when Jesus returns. Now, personally, I could be wrong, but personally, I believe that John, Paul, and Peter weren't confused about what was happening. Rather, they had a different message they were trying to deliver. Now, various theologians who spend a lot of time studying the Bible believe that when John uses the word last hour, he is referring to the time of tension between Jesus' first and second coming, a time period also referred to as the church age. Instead of John and Paul and Peter referring to a specific moment in time when all things come to culmination with the return of Jesus, they may be telling their audience that just because Jesus came and accomplished his mission and died for our sins and then conquered the grave, we still live in a time of tension, in the midst of a battle between good and evil, between light and darkness. Even though Jesus brought us an abundant life, we still face hardships due to the very real wickedness of this world, which still exists. So here's kind of a visual illustration of it. Time frame, timeline of the entire human history. So the tree, the garden, the fall of man. And notice how those arrows that are coming up, the red ones, the ones on the bottom, right? That represents wickedness and the influence that it has on humanity. Now, if this was truly done, there would still be some coming from the top because God did not completely depart from uh, humanity. But during that time, prior to Christ coming, it was mostly the world and the strong influence it was having on all people. But with Christ and what he did and then his ability to, our ability now to receive his spirit, things change. That wickedness is still influencing our world, but notice what's coming from up above, those yellow arrows. That's God and his goodness being poured out through the church. 
And then the man standing with his arms spread as Jesus has returned. And then after that, there's nothing but good. But this box, that rectangle, is where we live. This time of tension where there's evil and there's good influencing our world. Something that's important to notice, the reason why I feel like Paul and John and Peter are telling us this is to show us that we have a responsibility during this time. That we are, in a lot of ways, the agents through which that good comes into our world. I think that's why they warn their readers, be serious and discipline yourself. Also, avoid them. Avoid ones who operate continually in selfishness. You know, John does the same thing in telling the home churches about the Antichrist, which we'll get into here in a moment. But first, I want to apply this idea of living in the age of tension directly to us. Feel free to remove that if you would, Kai. Thank you. All right, some applications. So based on this year, 2020, I think it is beyond obvious that we live in a time that is not perfect. Right? From a pandemic during which people are dying, businesses are closing, and social dynamics are extremely suppressed, to racial issues that have led to riots, to political division that has our country torn in two. There is no denying that Jesus has not met, yet made all things new on this planet. Sociologists and statisticians have found that there is more division in America now than there was back during the Civil War. That's crazy. But at the same time, things aren't as broken as they could be. Even though the world may be falling apart outside of these walls, we as a church, Rimrock Downtown, still have community. We still gather together in different ways on a regular basis. We still have a vision and common goals. Even though we may have different ideologies on politics and how you handle pandemics, we can still come together to encourage and support one another. This is because we're united by the Spirit. Every single follower of Jesus has been spiritually regenerated and given everything we need to live life in harmony with others. Does that sound a little too idealistic for you? It's not for me. Check it out. 2 Peter 1. His divine power, that's God, Jesus, has given us everything needed for life and godliness. I'll read it again. His divine power has given us everything needed for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Thus he has given us through these things his precious and very great promises so that through them you may escape from the corruption that is in this world because of lust and may become participants in the divine nature. It's those golden arrows showering down on our time of tension. Did you catch this? That we have been given everything we need for life and godliness so that we, we can escape from the corruption that is in this world and become participants in the divine nature. I believe that this is what John, Peter, and Paul wanted audiences to know. Yes, you are in the midst of a, of a corrupt and evil world, but it is a battle. Yes, there are hardships, but you will, and you will suffer, but do not lose hope because you have been given everything you need to fight back, to be a part of the goodness that God is bringing. Give me one more moment to explain the battlefield in a bit more detail. The culture that surrounds us naturally gravitates towards selfishness, doesn't it? Whatever situation lies ahead of an individual, this world encourages us to do whatever is best for us. 
instead of being pushed to continually operate out of a selfless and caring demeanor, what Peter refers to as divine nature, we are constantly bombarded with the notion of relativism. That whatever is good for me is good. Whatever feels right is right. Let's look at Paul's list again in 2 Timothy 3. You will understand this, that in the last days, distressing times will come. For people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, inhumane, implacable, slanders, profligates, brutes, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. That describes relativism, this notion that we do whatever is best for us in the moment. Out of this approach flows suffering whether it's the person suffering from their own choices or other people suffering from that person's choices, selfishness produces pain and loss. And there's endless examples of this every day. Parents choosing less important things than their kids. Kids openly defying their parents. A husband or wife not making their spouse one of their top priorities. Classmates and coworkers openly mocking those who are different than them. Strangers wrapped up in rage towards other drivers. Disagreements between business owners and customers. Let me give you a specific example from my life. My wife and I own cabins up by Mount Rushmore. We just closed down for the end of the year. Hallelujah. Right? Five-month break. It's beautiful. But in the last week, I received an email from a woman who had to cancel last minute, and she is fighting tooth and nail to get every cent out of me. Right? It gives me the opportunity to show her love and to be patient or to be selfish and point out how she is so wrong and how, she, how rude she is and how she is not at all correct like she thinks she is. Which I find myself email after email doing. Pointing out her foolishness instead of just loving her and caring for her. Man, all of these things and endless more are examples of our selfishness winning the day. Each time it does, it brings different levels of suffering for the people involved. But remember, this isn't a wholesale slaughter. It is a battle. As Christians, every day we have a different option. An option to be participants of the divine nature. Opportunities to bring healing instead of pain. Growth instead of destruction, unity instead of division. The question we must ask ourselves now is how do we do this? How do we continually, how do we live counterculturally? Choosing to care more for others than for ourselves. The beauty of the Bible. Paul continues to tell Timothy some things that apply directly to us. 2 Timothy 3, But wicked people and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving others and being deceived. It's a downward spiral. But as for you, Timothy, believer in Jesus, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and and how from childhood you have known the sacred writings that are able to instruct you for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that everyone who belongs to God may be proficient, equipped for every good work. 
Paul is telling Timothy to be, in order to be an agent of God's light and change in the world full of selfish heartache, he must continue to live out of the guiding principles that he has learned. Truths that have come from Scripture, or as we know it, the Bible. And there's a lot of truths in the Bible, but there is one on which they all rest. One that if removed, everything else would fall into the category of the power of positive thinking and human potential. The foundational truth is that mankind was created by an all-powerful being that longs to step into our choice for pain and loss in order to bring us restoration. That he wants this so much that he became one of us and willingly bore our just punishment for our selfishness so that our relationship with him could be restored. The bedrock truth of the entire Bible is that Jesus is the Messiah or Savior of mankind. Without Jesus, without the Son of God coming into our messed up world to save us, Christianity is like so many other religious and spiritual beliefs. Mankind trying to figure out ways to explain his existence and how he can better his own life. But with Jesus... Christianity gives undeniable evidence that our Creator has the ability and a desire to do what we cannot. Give us everything we need for this life. And this is unlike any other system of belief. The difference lies entirely in our inability to do anything of genuine good and God's ability and desire to empower us to experience and help bring what others need. His love. This is why John speaks so adamantly to his audience about those he labels as antichrists. Let's read through that again. 1 John 18. Children, it is the last hour. As you have heard that antichrist is coming, so now many antichrists have come. From this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But by going out, they made it plain that none of them belong to us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and all of you have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and you know that no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and Son. No one who denies the Father who denies the Son has the Father. Everyone who confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he has promised us, eternal life. And according to what John just said, there are people that used to be a part of these home churches that are now denying that Jesus is Christ. By rejecting this truth, they are rejecting God's invitation to be directly involved with his broken creation so that he can bring restoration. These are the antichrists. Do you guys see John's definition of antichrist? A lot different than what our culture has told us it is. From looking at the historical context, it seems that something called Gnosticism was really popular during the end of the first century. The basic idea behind it is that matter or physicalness is evil. And to be set free, a person needs gnosis or knowledge of spiritual mysteries. Through this lens, people of the church twisted the truth of Jesus, saying that he was never really human. 
He just acted like he was. And this included his suffering on the cross. He didn't actually experience pain, but he was just putting on a show. This slight shift changes everything about the foundational truth of the Bible. It means that Jesus didn't take on the weight of our sin. It means that he is no longer essential for humanity to experience their creator's power. It means that Jesus is no longer the Messiah or the Christ. According to John, this changes everything. It says in verse 22, Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ or the Messiah? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Catch that. The creator of everything, God. So many people believe in God, but they don't believe in Jesus. But John said, whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. By denying that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, John 1.29, you can no longer experience your Maker's hand in powerful ways. When you remove Jesus from his rightful place as your Messiah or Savior, you put yourself back in the driver's seat and allow you and your selfish desires to be your guide. When this happens, you are just like everyone else in our culture, consumed by self, which only leads to loss. And antichrist within the church exists as much today as they did back then, maybe even more so. If you look at the doctrines and practices of certain Christian churches, you'll discover a slight but extremely powerful twist. So I did a little Google research. Jehovah's Witness believe that Jesus is not God, but rather the first of God's creation. It is thought that another name for Jesus is the Archangel Michael. So this means that the one who created us didn't care enough to suffer our punishment, but rather created somebody else to do it for him. Slight, but powerful. Catholicism looking at their doctrine. As an overall church, they believe that Jesus was our Messiah, but they also believe that a person must continually confess their sins to priests in order to stay forgiven. By doing this, they are limiting the saving power of Jesus and putting the power into the hands of men. Due to the relativistic nature of our culture, it seems that even mainstream Christian denominations are starting to trend away from Jesus being the only one that can reunite us with God. So four or five years ago, my wife and I were in an Episcopal church down in North Carolina. And the um, bishop, with his tall hat, all of that came in and gave the, the sermon or the message. And in it, this was on Easter Sunday, in it he very rarely, if at all, mentioned Jesus. And he ended it with a quote from Gandhi that love will conquer all. You guys know the name Rob Bell? used to be a kind of a famous pastor, and then he wrote the book, Love Wins, right? And he believes that we're all on the same train in different cars and that love will bring us to where we belong. And he is the uh, spiritual director of Oprah now. Right? Because of the importance of equality in our culture, more and more churches and denominations are removing Jesus from its foundation and playing into what is more acceptable to our mass culture. People don't think it's right to force others to believe the same thing. Rather, it's all about loving others, and we have different ways to do that. Now, please, please don't mishear me. Equality and loving others are essential components of, God, of a God-centered society, and they're all throughout the Bible. But even more so is Jesus. 
He is the undeniable source of equality. Because of who he is and what he did for all mankind, every single person that has ever lived has the ability to be reconciled with their maker. Right? There's no other better definition of equality. Jesus is also the undeniable source of love, our, our love for others. It is only through his power that we can overcome our selfish nature and selflessly love others. So to answer our question, how do we live counterculturally, choosing to care more for others than for ourselves? How do we become a part of being participants of, div- of the divine nature? According to the Bible, the collection of writings that has done more to positively influence the entire human history than any other thought process or ideology, the only way that we can bring the, that kind of good to our culture, the one that it desperately needs, is through Jesus, through the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior of our world. I want to end by looking at basically like a capsulated portion of the gospel. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. We're going to read it. I strongly encourage you when you get home, whenever that is, that you can sit down and meditate on this. You were dead through the trespasses and sins in which you once lived, following the course of this world, following the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work among those who are disobedient. That's our culture. All of us once lived among them in the passions of our flesh, following the desires of flesh and senses, and we were by nature children of wrath like everyone else. But... But God, who is rich in mercy out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead through our own trespasses or sins, made us alive with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not the results of work, so that no one may boast. For we are what he has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. Please leave that last one up there, Kai. So those first nine verses are the gospel. It really describes everything that Jesus came to do, who we were before him and now what we have in him. For me, that last verse, for we are what he has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. This answers the question, how do we live differently in the midst of this selfish culture? You got to go back to your creator. He is the one that made you and he specifically designed you in Christ Jesus for good things, things that he wants to see you accomplish, things that he wants to use you, the change that he wants to use you to bring about. It just requires total reliance on him. Without him, without Jesus, without the Spirit, we have nothing. But with him, we have everything we need for this life. Let's just take a moment, bring our minds before God, and then we'll sing some songs. 
God, thank you so much for being who you are. Thank you for delivering me from such a selfish life and continually delivering me from it. Right now, I just give you access to my mind, asking that you would bring your truth, your goodness, your power into my broken world so that I can live out what you have created me to live. Jesus, you are on the throne. You are the center of my life. Please give me the strength to stand firm in you as our culture pulls away. Give me the strength to stay focused on you as our culture pulls away.